When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Jared Halverson here. Welcome back to Unshaken and another week of scripture study. Today we'll be studying Ether 1 through 5, the first part of the Book of Mormon that is post Book of Mormon. Some bonus material that Moroni gives us, which I'm very grateful for. In fact, today I'm hoping to have a little bit of a family home evening with you. Yeah, my wife and I have been married almost 22 years now, which means we've had countless family home evenings. But I still think our best one was our first. It was the first Monday after our marriage, just the two of us. And it was the first time that family home evening really felt like it was in practice and not just in theory, at least for our little family that we were planning to begin. Now, my wife is an amazing teacher. It's one of the reasons I fell in love with her. I was teaching at the MTC. She was teaching at the MTC. In fact, she was gospel doctrine teacher when I first met her, and I'd always try to sneak over to her ward so I could try to become teacher's pet. It was my dream. We taught together whenever we had the chance. We team taught a mission prep workshop at BYU when we were first married. In fact, when I first started teaching seminary, I'd have my wife come and teach one lesson each semester, just so my students could get to know her. And at the end of every semester, I'd always ask them, so what was your favorite lesson the whole semester long? I stopped asking that question because it was always the same answer. Oh, when your wife came. I'm like, okay, fine. The only reason you put up with me all semester was so you could have one chance to learn from the real teacher in the Halverson family. Well, there we were together, team teaching one another. No kids yet, but we felt like a family. We'd just begun. And I still remember that first family home evening in San Diego, where we were sealed in the temple on our honeymoon as we were beginning a marriage that we plan on making eternal. It revolved around two different scriptures. One was from the Doctrine and Covenants. When uh, Joseph Smith was being taught about the Kirtland Temple, and Joseph Smith was told, organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house you see why my wife and I would be drawn to this verse? Even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God, which is exactly what we wanted to create together. And so we wanted to spend that first family home evening almost laying out floor plans, spiritually speaking, of the kind of house we wanted to build together. And the other scripture that guided our thoughts that first family home evening is from the chapters we'll study today. It happened to be Ether chapter 2, verse 17, that talked about making these barges that were tight like unto a dish. And that became a focal point for us as we pondered, how are we going to create a barge, a home, where our children can grow up without the danger of being sunk in sin? How do we make our home tight like unto a dish so that we can cross the ocean and hopefully eventually get to the promised land? Well, that's what we're going to be studying today. There are so many things we can learn from these first chapters of Ether this week. But that's one way to apply these chapters to our own situation. What kind of a home are we building for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren? How do we establish a house of God? And how do we make it tight like unto a dish? 
Well, let's back up and see where we start. The Book of Ether has its own history, which is pretty interesting. We won't spend too much time on this, but at least to understand where this is all coming from. You see, if we, as we talked last week, Mormon had finished his writings by the end of Mormon chapter 7. Moroni tacks on 8 to finish Dad's work, and 9 as his first attempt to conclude the Book of Mormon. But seeing that he outlived his father, he decided to continue his father's work. If you recall, Mormon spent his lifetime abridging the record of his people. Well, his son Moroni found another set of plates. These were the records of the Jaredite civilization. And just like Dad abridged the Nephite history, son Moroni abridges the Jaredite history. Now, Jaredite history intersects with Nephite slash Mulekite history twice. Once in the reign of King Mosiah I, King Benjamin's dad, and again during the reign of King Mosiah II, King Benjamin's son. Now, I say Nephite slash Mulekite because the last survivor of the Jaredite civilization, a man named Coriantumr, who we'll meet in a couple of weeks, he survives his civilization long enough to be found by the Mulekites. Those are the people that eventually settled in Zarahemla. And Coriantumr lived with them for nine moons, as he called them, nine months. And he had a, a large stone with engravings upon it describing the history of his people. Now, if you remember from the book of Omni, months and months ago, when King Mosiah I is warned to leave the, the wicked area that he was in, in the land of Nephi, and move elsewhere, they eventually come to the city of Zarahemla and merge Nephites and Mulekites, and King Mosiah becomes the king. So during his reign, this is the first time we see a Nephite group start to learn something about this Jaredite group that had preceded them to the Promised Land and had lived there for centuries. Now fast forward two generations, uh, Mosiah to Benjamin to Mosiah, and during the reign of Mosiah II, you remember when he's back in Zarahemla, there had been a group two generations before, Zenith, that goes off to try to reclaim the land of Nephi. Zenith is there, then his son Noah, and then his son Limhi. Limhi is trapped under Lamanite bondage, and so he sends out a group to go see if they can discover Zarahemla. It's been two generations since we've been there, but maybe if we can find them, we can recruit them to help us, uh, help free ourselves from the Lamanite bondage, bring us back home. Well, this group of men that he sent out in search of Zarahemla never found Zarahemla, but they did find this land of desolation, covered with bones and with swords and with shields that were all cankering in rust. And there they also discovered 24 plates that were written in some language they did not know. They bring them back, and King Limhi is fascinated by this. He just wants to understand what happened to this civilization, but he doesn't know how to translate the records. So when Ammon not the Ammon that chops off arms, that's later. But when Ammon, who was sent from Zarahemla to go in search of the people who went off two generations before, back to the land of Nephi. I know this is complicated. Can you really imagine an uneducated farm boy being able to pull all these interesting storylines and flashbacks and all these things together without any notes, just off the top of his head? Yeah, right. Anyway, when Ammon finds the people of Limhi, that's one thing Limhi wants to know. Do you know anybody who can translate things? And Ammon's like, actually, yes. Back in Zarahemla, our king, Mosiah, is a seer. He has interpreters with which he can interpret languages and learn things that there is no other way to learn other than by the gift and power of God. And Limhi's thrilled. So eventually when this group comes back to Zarahemla, that's one of the first things that King Mosiah II does, is translate those 24 plates, which was the record of the Jaredites. It's that record that Moroni is now abridging. If you look at the beginning of the book of Ether, it says right at the start, it's the record of the Jaredites taken from the 24 plates found by the people of Limhi in the days of King Mosiah. So I, I hope that that history is starting to make a little bit of sense. 
A couple of verses from that earlier history are worth thinking about. Mosiah 8 verse 12, when Limhi first tells Ammon the story of how they found the 24 plates, he says this, and I am desirous to know the cause of their destruction. Remember, Limhi was facing destruction himself under the hands of his Lamanite captors. And so to be fascinated by this other civilization that has been brought to its knees and eventually annihilated, is that what's going to happen to us? It's almost like he's seeing these plates as some kind of cautionary tale. Perhaps this will unlock for us the mystery of what leads to complete societal destruction. We'll see some of that next week in the middle chapters of Ether. Also back in Mosiah 8, Limhi says this about these plates, still unsure of what's on them. He says, doubtless a great mystery is contained within these plates. And these interpreters were doubtless prepared for the purpose of unfolding all such mysteries to the children of men. There must be something worth preserving here. Because not only is, are the records preserved, but there are interpreters out there somewhere that Mosiah has. In fact, that to me is a fascinating comparison as well, that one group finds the records, but another group has the interpreters. They started together with the Jaredites, and then at some point they were separated, and one civilization gets the record and another civilization gets the interpreters. How the interpreters came about is an incredibly complicated story without a whole lot of detail, so it leads to quite a bit of speculation. There's some fascinating things written about possibilities there of how they were passed down. I won't get into that today. But I find it fascinating that two separate groups eventually come together, one with history and the other with a way of trying to unlock and interpret, understand that history. In fact, it sounds a lot like two families coming together in a marriage, beginning something new, each with their own history and each with a lens through which to interpret the other person's history as the two try to become one and meld tradition and practice and habits and so on to be able to become one family. It's a beautiful thing to watch two become one. And in many ways, it is a miracle. As miraculous as the coming together of plates and interpreters to help us understand the story of the Jaredites. By the time it was translated and shared, this is now in Mosiah 28, 18. King Mosiah II has translated, is sharing these things with his people. And it says that now this account did cause the people of Mosiah to mourn exceedingly. Yea, they were filled with sorrow. Nevertheless, it gave them much knowledge in the which they did rejoice. That's exactly the kind of experience we're supposed to have as we study the book of Ether. The same emotions should color our experience here, especially next week and the week after. As we watch the downfall of the Jaredite civilization, we should mourn exceedingly to see what their people went through and the parallels to what we go through in our own day. But at the same time, we should rejoice in the knowledge that this book gives us, especially the knowledge that we'll learn today. Now, all that backstory is summed up in the first two verses of this book, Ether 1.1. And now I, Moroni, proceed to give an account of those ancient inhabitants who were destroyed by the hand of the Lord upon the face of this north country. Just as his father saw the Lord's hand in the destruction of his own civilization, Moroni sees the Lord's hand in the destruction of the Jaredites. The Lord didn't cause it in either case, but by withdrawing his spirit, in fact, being cast out by the wickedness of the people, he, the spirit ceased striving with both civilizations, and they ended up destroying themselves. Remember, that was one of Mormon's takeaways. It is by the wicked that the wicked are destroyed. Then in verse 2, And I take mine account from the twenty and four plates which were found by the people of Limhi, 
which is called the Book of Ether. Now he admits in the next few verses that the story begins with creation itself, but assuming that those truths would be had on other records, the Bible namely, Moroni's not going to spend time on that. Instead, he's going to pick up where the stories diverge from what we have in the Bible. We're now in Genesis chapter 11, and what we'll get new here in the Book of Mormon, namely the story of the Tower of Babel. In verse 5, he admits it's not going to be a full account, just a part of one, from the tower down until this civilization was destroyed. Verse 6, the person who actually wrote it was named Ether, hence the name of the book, and he was a descendant of, and then we get a long list of names, father to son, father to son, to trace the genealogy of Ether back to Jared where this story begins. I actually met an anti-Mormon years ago who tried to attack the Book of Mormon on the basis of its absence of genealogy at the beginning. He said, if this is really an ancient Semitic text, it should have started with genealogy. The Old Testament is full of important genealogies that the Jews themselves considered of utmost importance. In fact, the way Matthew begins his gospel, the most Jewish of the four Christian gospels, what is it? It's the genealogy of Jesus. And that was his point. If the Book of Mormon really was an ancient Semitic text, it should have begun with genealogy. I remember at, the, at first going, what, you miss that? You want that? Most people, it's just skip over. Him to him to him to him, begat, 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 I don't care. Just move forward and give me some stories. But this anti-Mormon may have actually had a point. But what's fascinating is the book of Ether begins exactly as he would have expected. And when you actually think about it, we're missing the book of Lehi. So for all intents and purposes, it could have begun with genealogy. That's speculation one way or the other. But it's interesting back in 1 Nephi chapter 6, the first time Nephi pauses the narrative to talk about the actual record he's writing, he admits in the first two verses, I'm not going to spend time on genealogy. I have more important things to talk about. It sufficeth me to say that we are descendants of Joseph. Good enough? Which actually speaks directly to this anti-Mormon's point. If it really is an ancient Semitic text, and it should have started with genealogy, Nephi would have known that. And he would have been concerned that he wasn't doing that, that he wasn't following the, the normal tradition as far as record keeping was concerned. He makes a point of apologizing almost, of excusing himself, of explaining why he's not doing what is normally expected of him. Fascinating to me that this anti-Mormon's complaint actually confirmed my testimony of the Book of Mormon more than if I hadn't known that concern. Well, by verse 33, the genealogy is over and the story begins. This Jared came forth with his brother and their families, with some others and their families from the great tower at the time the Lord confounded the language of the people and swore in his wrath that they should be scattered upon all the face of the earth. And according to the word of the Lord, the people were scattered. Sound familiar from our Book of Mormon study? What's the story of the first family in the Book of Mormon? The scattering of Israel. Lehi and his family being scattered from Israel, the branch cut off from the olive tree, the remnant transplanted to a new promised land. Well, this story begins with scattering as well. And it was a scattering that happened during the time of the Tower of Babel and a scattering that involved a family of a man named Jared. Now, placing things in context in time is important. There's some really fascinating lessons we need to learn from the Tower of Babel, most of which revolve around the idea that there are no shortcuts to heaven. Now, according to our Old Testament context, what has already occurred by the time you get to the story of the Tower of Babel, the city of Enoch has already been caught up to heaven. Thank you, Moses 7. And the flood has already occurred. Thank you, Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. And in some ways, the construction of the Tower of Babel comes in response to those two events. First, how do we reach heaven? 
We missed the boat when it came to the city of Enoch. And we have no intention. This is a wicked time period. The land of Babel, or Babel as it's often called, as in Babylon, a precursor to that. And with all of the imagery of a wicked world that Babylon conveys. Nimrod was its king, a great hunter, but one who was trying to hunt God in some ways. To replace him, to ascend above him, or find some easier way. Some way that didn't involve righteousness or worthiness. That didn't require Zion. I don't want to be one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness and not have poor among us. Nimrod wanted an easier way to dethrone God. Sound a little like Lucifer in the war in heaven? It should. And the other story, the flood, by building a tower high enough to reach heaven, not only do we get to Zion without having to build a city of righteousness, but we escape the kind of punishment that the flood story entails. We can be as wicked as we want and not have to suffer the consequences. Again, sound like Satan's plan? Destruction of agency means there's no choice and or no consequence. Do whatever you want, you're not going to be punished. Everybody's guaranteed to come back home. No wonder the Lord confounded the languages there. To be able to achieve such a massive construction project, communication is absolutely essential. There's gonna, everyone's going to have to be able to get on the same page to be able to perform this great work. So to end the construction, God ended the coordination. He ended the communication. In some ways, it was also a matter of the punishment fitting the crime. You are trying to reach Zion without becoming Zion? Well, let me make it even more painfully obvious that you are unable to become of one heart and one mind. There will be no common language among you. And it's often those linguistic difficulties that divide us and separate us. When I was researching the conversion of the Waldensian saints in the Italian mission, one of the missionaries wrote a letter back home, and he's up there in the Alps, right on the border between Italy and France, and for some things the locals spoke French, and for others the locals spoke Italian, and for other things they spoke this local dialect called Piedmontese. And this poor American missionary is writing home, cursing the Tower of Babel, literally. He's like, oh, that cursed tower, all these different languages. There's no way to connect with people. I can't understand them. They can't understand me. And that's exactly what's happening here. Actually, one of the beautiful things about building Zion is that we are reversing the Tower of Babel. We are becoming one. It's one of the great blessings of missionary work as people around the world are switching places to learn one another's language and culture. We're breaking down those linguistic and cultural barriers in the effort, in the attempt to become one. One heart, one mind, dwelling together in righteousness. The gathering of Israel, in many ways, is an attempt to reverse the Tower of Babel. We're trying to build Zion the right way. We're trying to cleanse the earth, and without fear of a flood this time. Now, the other element is that this story revolves around the family of a man named Jared. Now, you'd think that I'd be extra proud of that fact, since that's my name as well. But, to be honest, I've never really cared that much for my name. I chose not to pass it down to either one of my sons. I mean, it's a fine name, but it's, uh, that's never really meant a whole lot to me. And when I found out in the Hebrew, it simply means to go down. I thought, wow, what's that? is there any big significance to that? And not only did the name not seem like much, but even the person doesn't seem to do a whole lot in Scripture. In the Book of Mormon, Jared may be the leader of this people. They are called the Jaredites. But it's the brother of Jared that does all the leading, it seems. And in the Bible... There is a man named Jared as well, but the only thing we really know about him is that he's the father of Enoch. And Enoch's the one that really does all this amazing work to get the city of Enoch back to God. 
So as a kid growing up, it just seemed like Jared, whether in the Old Testament or the Book of Mormon, seemed kind of nondescript, and the name didn't really seem to mean much. Well, oh well, it's my name. I'll get used to it. But honestly, it's only been in the last few months that for whatever reason, the name Jared has started to mean more and more to me because of that etymology, to go down. It hit me when I was studying the word condescension, Christ's willingness to come down, to descend below all things, to become like us so that then he could help us become like him, help us ascend back to God. That Christ, in many ways, was a descender. He was a Jared. He was one willing to come down. In fact, that to me, that tied into the story of Jared and his son Enoch. That Jared, he who came down, raised an Enoch. He who brought a whole civilization up. That is condescension. And what we might call con-ascension, as the Lord brings us home. And even in this story of the Jaredites, Jared, their leader, at least politically it seems, always seems to defer to his brother for spiritual guidance and spiritual leadership. There seems to be a humility on Jared's part, a willingness to lower himself so that his brother could increase. Like John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. I must go down so that Jesus can go up. It's even fascinating that we never learn the name of the brother of Jared in the Book of Mormon. We find that out later in church history. When a husband and wife have a, a son, they bring this child to the prophet Joseph and say, Joseph, will you give our child a name and a blessing? You can give the name itself. And in that baby blessing, when Joseph says, and the name that you'll be known is Mahanrai Moriankamer, you can picture the, the blood draining out of mom and dad's face until afterwards Joseph said, that's actually the name of the brother of Jared. It was just revealed to me. Well, why not have the name here? I think there is a certain humility there. A willingness to go without a name, or in this case, to take upon himself the name of someone else. If Jesus, in a way, represents a descender, a condescender, are we not all the brothers and sisters of Jared? Where his name means so much more than our own, that we take upon ourselves the name of Christ, and that our own identity is merely a reflection of our connection to the great condescending Christ. I hope that we can see ourselves in this story. Now, verse 34, the brother of Jared, being a large and mighty man, and a man highly favored of the Lord, Jared, his brother, said unto him, Cry unto the Lord that he will not confound us, that we may not understand our words. I love that Jared, who again seems to be the political leader of this clan, this family, recognizes the spiritual strength, spiritual gifts of his brother and asks him to exercise that spiritual leadership on behalf of the family. I think, honestly, in some ways, this is what could have happened among Lehi's sons. Laman was the firstborn. He was supposed to have political leadership of his family. Nephi himself recognizes that and wishes it was the case. But if Laman could have been humble enough to recognize the spiritual gifts of his younger brother, can you imagine the difference in the history that we see in the Book of Mormon? If this oldest son, this leader of the family, Laman, instead of being jealous or threatened by Nephi's spiritual gifts, if he would have relied upon them, everything I see in 1 Nephi, Nephi would have been more than willing. He would have been happy to offer his gifts in support of the family leader, the big brother that he looked up to as well. Well, that wasn't the case. Here in the, in the book of Ether, it is. 
Verse 35, Jared's brother does as asked. He cries unto the Lord, and the Lord had compassion upon Jared and his whole family. So he did not confound their language. Now verse 36, Jared, seeing this first circle of compassion from the Lord, seeks to expand that circle. And now he asks his brother to pray and cry unto the Lord for their friends. And in 37, that's exactly what he does. He cries unto the Lord, and the Lord had compassion upon their friends and their families also, that they were not confounded. And then in 38, no doubt moved by the Spirit, since he asks for exactly what the Lord wanted to give them in the first place, Jared speaks again to his brother and says, Go and inquire of the Lord whether he will drive us out of the land. And if he will drive us out of the land, cry unto him whither we shall go. Who knoweth but the Lord will carry us forth into a land which is choice above all the earth? And if it so be, let us be faithful unto the Lord, that we may receive it for our inheritance. I love that Jared asks for a best case scenario. He doesn't know what the future holds, but what if? Who knows what might happen? If the Lord carries us out of here, maybe it's a going toward and not just a leaving behind. Maybe we'll go to a better place, a more promised land than what we're used to. Do we have optimism like that? Do we have faith in our future? To picture a best-case scenario for what the Lord has in store for us? Ultimately, the Lord's blessings will far exceed any kind of thing we've pre-envisioned. So why not hold out hope from the start? Verse 39, the brother of Jared again cries unto the Lord according to that which had been spoken by the mouth of Jared. And the Lord hears the brother of Jared and had compassion upon him. That's the third time in these short verses that the Lord's compassion is mentioned compassion, to suffer with, all a part of the Lord's condescension, to descend with his willingness to go through all things, to descend below all things so that he could bear us up. Jared going down, Enoch bringing up, father and son. Well, like I said, that's exactly what's going to happen. In verse 41, the Lord then commands the people to prepare themselves. Go to Gather together thy flocks, both male and female, of every kind, also of the seed of the earth of every kind, and thy families, and also Jared thy brother and his families, and also thy friends and their families, and the friends of Jared and their families. Interesting detail that Jared's friends and Jared, the brother of Jared's friends were two separate groups. These brothers can have a lot in common, obviously. They're part of the same family. But they now have their own families and their own circle of friends. The Lord wants to bring the whole group. I love that. It reminds me of the first story in the Book of Mormon. Again, there's such parallels between the history of the Jaredites and the history of the Nephites when they have to go back and get Ishmael's family. What they really need is the daughter so they can get married and raise up seed of their own. But the Lord doesn't want to break up that family either. And so mom and dad and all the brothers, everybody's coming. So Jared, bring your family. Bring your friends and bring their families. Brother of Jared, bring your family. Bring your friends. Bring their families. Let's get everybody together. And while you're at it, bring flocks and herds, male and female. We're in for the long haul. Remember that verse from Doctrine and Covenants 88. Organize yourselves. Prepare every needful thing. It's exactly what they're doing. In fact, in chapter 2, you see more details, not just flocks, which are a little bit easier to handle, I'm sure. But in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, also, fowls of the air, catch them. That's going to be harder. Fish of the sea, you're going to have to prepare a vessel for that, which is going to be difficult as well. Verse 3, carry with you Deseret, which is by interpretation a honeybee. Carry swarms of bees. 
That's going to be difficult. Wow, is all this extra stuff going to be worth it on this journey? Can we just go with the bare essentials? I love the fact that the Lord is asking them to add an additional burden of preparation because of the additional blessing that will eventually afford them. It's not just about survival. I don't want you to just survive. I want you to thrive. It's not just sustenance. It's sweetness that I'm offering. Will bees require an extra level of effort and work? Yes. But what will they provide for you? Something sweet above all that is sweet. As we are preparing our families and our friends to cross an unknown ocean and eventually arrive at a promised land, as we're following God's plan through our mortal wilderness in hopes of reaching heaven, so much of what the Lord asks us to do is an added burden, but it is an added blessing at the same time. Yes, it's extra effort, but it's sweetness that the Lord is trying to bring into our mortal experience. Then back to chapter 1, verse 42, the Lord says to the brother of Jared, When thou hast done this, thou shalt go at the head of them down into the valley which is northward. You're going to go down into the valley. You're descending. Jared, you're going down. And there will I meet thee. I will go down too. I will condescend. I will go down with you so that I can go before you into a land which is choice above all the lands of the earth. Precisely that best case scenario that you've been praying for. Why do we doubt the goodness and generosity of God? I have a good friend whose penchant for realism has unfortunately descended more into pessimism. And he said an interesting thing at one point to me where it was like, well, I know the plan of salvation sounds really good, but it almost sounds too good to be true. And just the way he's wired, if there are two possible options, he tends to pick the least appealing of the two. He would have made a good early Puritan, uh, just trying to find something that's harder and harsher. Who am I to think I am allowed to enjoy anything in life? No. Assume the best. Paint a best case scenario. And be amazed that God is even more generous than you envisioned. It's exactly what the Lord is promising here. Verse 43, And there will I bless thee and thy seed, and raise up unto me of thy seed, and of the seed of thy brother, and they who shall go with thee, a great nation. There shall be none greater than the nation which I shall raise up unto me of thy seed upon all the face of the earth. You see how this story would be so beautiful as you're starting a family? My wife and I wanted to raise up seed, but I love how the Lord says it twice in that verse. You're raising them up unto me. They were Heavenly Father's children long before they became our own. And then the Lord concludes, And thus I will do unto thee, because this long time ye have cried unto me. I'll give it because you asked. And I delight in blessing my children with the righteous desires of their heart. Well, the story picks up in chapter 2. It came to pass that Jared and his brother and their families, and also the friends of Jared and his brother and their families. Again, we want the whole group. They went down, they descended, they jareded, they went down into the valley which was northward. And the name of the valley was Nimrod, being called after the mighty hunter. Again, this wicked leader that was trying to dethrone God. They went with their flocks which they had gathered together, male and female of every kind. They know they're in this for the long haul. 
In verse 4, when they got to the valley of Nimrod, the Lord came down, again this idea of descending, and talked with the brother of Jared. He was in a cloud, and the brother of Jared saw him not. This is important background for what we'll see in chapter 3, when the Lord again speaks to the brother of Jared, but this time the cloud parts, in a manner of speaking. Verse 5, the Lord commands them that they should go forth into the wilderness, yea, into that quarter where there never had man been. And it came to pass that the Lord did go before them and did talk with them as he stood in a cloud and gave directions whither they should travel. I love that verse as it relates to building a family. My wife and I were headed off into uncharted waters, for us at least. We were launching out into a quarter of our lives where we had never been before. And how would we know where to go, how to live? We trusted that the Lord would give us directions, and he has. It's exactly what happened with Lehi's family when they find the Liahona, which led them through the more fertile parts of the wilderness as they prepared to go to the promised land. This is so much like the story of Exodus in the Old Testament. As the Lord leads Israel to their promised land as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke by day. It doesn't matter if you don't know where you're going, if you're headed into uncharted territory. As long as the Lord goes before you, giving you directions along the way, then there's no way that you'll get lost. In verse 6, they did travel in the wilderness and did build barges in which they did cross many waters, being directed continually by the hand of the Lord. Now, these are not the same barges that we'll see later in the chapter. This is a preliminary attempt to learn, to master those skills. I love that the Lord is preparing them as they go through these waters to eventually cross the great waters. So often what the Lord asks us to do today is meant to prepare us for larger tasks that he will yet ask us to perform tomorrow. Now verse 7 gives us an important detail. And the Lord would not suffer that they should stop beyond the sea in the wilderness, but he would that they should come forth even unto the land of promise, which was choice above all other lands which the Lord God had preserved for a righteous people. In other words, this is a long journey, and there are lands and waters to cross, but those are still preliminary and preparatory. There will be a great sea to cross and the promised land to arrive at, and you are not to stop progressing until you get there. Now here the Lord's going to give us a little interruption to explain what the promised land is all about. So in verse 8 through 10, we see this brief interruption to describe the promised land. And then in verse 11 and 12, we see an interruption of the interruption as Moroni draws the Gentile attention to this fact. Verse 8, God had sworn in his wrath unto the brother of Jared that whoso should possess this land of promise from that time henceforth and forever should serve him, the true and only God, or they should be swept off when the fullness of his wrath should come upon them. In other words, we call it the promised land because in this land, promises are kept. Not just the promises God makes to us. I will give you this promised land for you and your posterity. But conversely, it's a land where you keep your promises to him, to serve him, to repent of our sins, to be worthy. Remember, we're only chosen when we choose God. Well, the land is only promised to us as we keep our promises to God. Verse 9, he reiterates it. We can behold the decrees of God concerning this land, that it is a land of promise. This is Moroni from his vantage point of history looking back and saying, yep, that's exactly what happened. 
I've abridged this record and seen that once the Jaredites stopped keeping their promises, they were swept off the promised land. I've seen it in my own civilization, the Nephites. When they stopped keeping their promises to God, God stopped keeping his promises with them, and the promised land was promised them no more. They were swept off as well. See why he'd say that in verse 9? We can behold the decrees of God concerning this land. Believe me, I've beheld them. I've lived through them. It is a land of promise. And whatsoever nation shall possess it shall serve God, or they shall be swept off when the fullness of his wrath shall come upon them. And the fullness of his wrath cometh upon them when they are ripened in iniquity, which is what we'll see in two weeks from the Jaredites, which is what we saw last week from the Nephites. Chosen people in a promised land. That only fits when those people choose to keep their promises to God. Verse 10, Behold, this is a land which is choice above all other lands. Wherefore, he that doth possess it shall serve God or shall be swept off. For it is the everlasting decree of God, and it is not until the fullness of iniquity among the children of the land that they are swept off. We saw ripening in iniquity in verse 9, reaching the fullness of iniquity in verse 10. We saw that decline, that descent towards destruction at the end of 4th Nephi. We saw the horrific things that Nephite civilization had succumbed to in the Book of Mormon. And we see that so much of what happened in their day parallels what is happening in ours. As Moroni sees, speaks to us as if we were present, although we were not, well, we were present to him. And in Mormon 8 and 9, he shows us our day. And are we ripening? Are we approaching a fullness? Are we in danger of being swept off? Are our promised lands becoming less and less promising as places to raise our families up unto the Lord? And is it a result of us not keeping our promises to serve God? No wonder Moroni interrupts his interruption. And on the heels of what he has said about the promised land in 8, 9, 10, turns again to the camera and says in 11 and 12, This cometh unto you, O ye Gentiles. I'm speaking to you now that ye may know the decrees of God, that ye may repent and not continue in your iniquities until the fullness come. Don't get ripened. Don't reach the fullness. That ye may not bring down the fullness of the wrath of God upon you as the inhabitants of the land have hitherto done. Twice, Jaredites and Nephites, learn from us. Be wiser than we were. Be more repentant. Be more promised so the land can remain promised to you. Verse 12, Behold, this is a choice land. Whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, but only if they will but serve the God of the land, who is Jesus Christ, who hath been manifested by the things which we have written. Those early Puritans who came to a new land that would eventually become the United States of America, they intended to be a city on a hill that could not be hid, trying to let people know that their errand into the wilderness was one of setting an example of what serving God, of what repenting of sin really looked like. They intended fully to serve Jesus Christ. They established what they considered Bible commonwealths. The nation was founded by wise and good men raised up for that very purpose. The Constitution was an inspired document, the Doctrine and Covenants says. Political democracy, which was considered an experiment when it was first tried, has now spread all over the globe. 
as people are exercising agency, choosing to decide for themselves. That's what the war in heaven was about. That's what the shift in government was all about in Mosiah chapter 29. But the danger exists. And this is not just a United States blessing or a United States problem. Again, as freedom from bondage and from captivity, as democracy has spread almost worldwide, will we choose to serve the God of the land? Will we choose to follow Jesus Christ? By the way, before we finish this interruption and return to the story of the brother of Jared, it's fascinating that when Ezra Taft Benson, who was the ultimate fan of the Book of Mormon and the ultimate fan of democracy in the United States, when he was wearing two hats, Apostle of the Lord and Secretary of Agriculture in the cabinet of President Dwight D. Eisenhower, ever the bold missionary, Secretary Benson would often write letters with lengthy excerpts from the Book of Mormon to give to President Eisenhower, including verses like these describing the United States' role in the world and the role of righteousness in exalting a nation. At one point, President Eisenhower wrote a letter back to Secretary-slash-Elder Ezra Taft Benson and said, Thank you for drawing on your wide knowledge of the Book of Mormon to send me certain prophecies and revelations. The quotations I have read with the greatest of interest, with special applications to the growth and the problems of America. I love thinking of verses from Ether chapter 2 being studied in the Oval Office. All because a courageous Christian chose not to dilute his discipleship simply because he was in public office. Well, Moroni brings us back to the story. Verse 13, now I proceed with my record. Sorry, not sorry, for the interruption and the interruption of the interruption. You just need to understand the importance of the land that this group is going to. The land that saw the downfall of two civilizations and that Moroni was hoping and pleading and praying would not see a, the downfall of a third. Verse 13, Behold, it came to pass that the Lord did bring Jared and his brethren forth, even to that great sea which divideth the lands. They'd crossed many waters up to this point, but no waters quite as great as these. And as they came to the sea, they pitched their tents, and they called the name of the place Moriankamer. Now that's the one hint we get as to the brother of Jared's name, Mahanrai Moriankamer. And they dwelt in tents upon the seashore for the space of four years. Now, don't get too comfortable as you think about this beachfront property. Verse 14 says that at the end of the four years, the Lord came again unto the brother of Jared and stood in a cloud and talked with him. So far, so good. But notice the next phrase. And for the space of three hours did the Lord talk with the brother of Jared and chastened him. Can you imagine getting a three-hour tongue lashing from God? I mean, before we switched to two-hour church, three hours could seem like a long time on a Sunday to go to church. But that was all supposed to be uplifting. Imagine a three-hour tongue lashing. That's exactly what the brother of Jared got. And why did he get it? Look at the last line of 14. Because he remembered not to call upon the name of the Lord. Wow. Ere you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? Answering negatively to that hymn could result in a three-hour chastisement from heaven? In fact, in verse 15, it says the brother of Jared repented of the evil which he had done. Wait, the evil which he had done? I, I think I'd call this the good which he had not done. This was just a sin of omission, right? And yet the Lord seems to describe it as a sin of commission. The commission of omission. The evil of something that you did. Namely, 
a good that you did not do. Now, what is so evil about forgetting to pray? What sin was he repenting of? And what did this have to do with not calling upon the name of the Lord? Well, first of all, I would say that this was a sin against knowledge because the brother of Jared knew how important it was to call upon the name of God. Isn't that what defines him back in chapter 1? The phrase, cry unto the Lord, appears in verse 34 and 35 and 36 and 37 and 38 and 39. By the time you get to the end of that chapter, why did God promise this best case scenario, promised land beyond your wildest dreams? Because this long time ye have cried unto me. Brother Jared, you've had experiences with this. You of all people know better. This is not just any old sin. This is a sin of who you are and what you know. This is a sin against prior experience. Secondly, this is a sin against reliance upon God. Reliance that you have recognized from the very beginning. Remember back in chapter 1 verse 42. I will go down. I'll be in the valley with you. I will meet you there. I will go before you. In chapter 2, verse 5, where the Lord says, I will give you directions where you should travel. Or in verse 6, that he was directed continually by the hand of the Lord. This entire time you have relied upon me. That's why you've been crying to me constantly. You've recognized your own inadequacy, your own dependence upon me. Do not outgrow that. Just because it's gotten easy, now that you're lying on the beach... Do not think that you can do this without me. Remember that beautiful phrase in the hymn, I need thee every hour. Every hour in joy and pain. Or do we only turn to the Lord in our pains? Reminds me of the apostles on the Sea of Galilee. When they wake up a sleeping Jesus, freaking out, saying, Master, care us out, not that we perish. How could you sleep through this? We need you. And what's amazing, though, is the fact that they let him fall asleep to begin with. To there carest thou not that we perish. If I were Jesus, I probably would have said, uh, carest thou not that I sleepeth? And the answer would be no. You didn't care that I was asleep. You were totally fine with that. Why? Presumably because we were crossing the Sea of Galilee, which you apostles, former fishermen, many of them, probably felt completely comfortable on. Oh, Jesus, you can sleep through this one. We got this. This is our territory. So we don't need your aid. Don't need your assistance. Don't need you to be awake. Sleep in peace. And yet it was peace that was lost. As these professional fishermen all of a sudden were no longer in their comfort zone. They thought they were about to die in a place where previously they felt completely in control. They let him fall asleep in an area of life in which they thought they could handle things on their own, that they wouldn't need God's constant help or vigilance. You have been crying to me for the last half chapter, Mahanrai, because you've known you needed my direction and help. Don't give up on that reliance on heaven just because you've reached the seashore. I love what President Henry B. Eyring said about this decades ago. Can't you almost hear the sighs of relief as the burdens are set down? The flocks are let to feed in the coastal plain. The tents are pitched and the place is named for the great leader who brought them safely through. The scriptures don't tell us why the people remembered not to call upon the name of the Lord during those years. But our own experience may give us a clue. 
When we face an unknown wilderness or a strange sea, which may for us be a move to a new place or mortal sickness in a loved one, our hearts soften and we beg for blessings and weep when they're given. But when it's harder to see the needs or the blessings, when our tents are pitched, it's easy to forget the master and think more of the part our own courage and exertions may have contributed. Sometimes those around us make that forgetfulness more likely by praising us and attributing the victory to us. Most of us spend a good part of our lives in perils so nearly invisible that self-reliance comes easily and accepting counsel from brothers or from God comes hard. So insightful on the part of President Eyring. Someone who has learned to never get too comfortable in your own competence, but to cry unto the Lord for divine aid, no matter how comfortable you are with the homework you've done. So at first, the brother of Jared was sinning against knowledge and experience and identity, his connection with prayer. And secondly, he was sinning against reliance upon the Lord. Thirdly, he was sinning against progress. Remember, he'd been told clearly back in verse 7, you're not supposed to stay here. Don't stop until you get to the land of promise. It's almost like this is a proximate promised land, but there is an ultimate promised land. It's kind of like, again, parallels to the story of the Lehi family. After leaving Jerusalem and traveling through the wilderness for eight years, they get to a mini promised land, lowercase p, lowercase l. They call it the land bountiful because it was. And it would have been so easy to just set, pitch their tents, set up shop, and stay. That seemed to be Laman and Lemuel's preference. Remember, they're so confused and angry that Nephi would start building a ship because that suggests, wait a minute, our journey isn't finished? Isn't this place good enough? We've left Jerusalem. We're not going to be destroyed because of their wickedness. We've come to a land that's way better than what I'd pictured, better than what we've seen the last eight years in the wilderness. It is bountiful. Let's stay. This is good enough for us. But if we believe in a gospel of eternal progression, then any time we stop that progression short of eternity, then we've damned ourselves. We are not supposed to stop. No matter how much wilderness we've crossed, don't give up until you reach the capital P, capital L, promised land that God envisions. Why would you dwell in a tent for four years? when you can dwell in the mansions above eternally? Why would you give your name to a place you were never intended to stay long? Again, we give names to places we intend to inhabit. And the fact they called it Moriankamer suggests that they intended to stay there for a while. Now, it's one thing to rest and to recover. And that is so important to take time to be well so that we don't have to take time to be sick, as Elder Holland has taught, to regroup and resupply. All of those things are important. But four years sitting beachside, that was never the intent. And if there was a fourth sin, something they were sinning against, I would say it was a sin against initiative. When were you going to get around to moving forward, Mahanrai? Because recall who initiated the conversation? It's not that the brother of Jared started a prayer and the Lord interrupted it. It's that the Lord came again unto the brother of Jared, stood in a cloud, talked with him, chastened him, 
And in verse 15, once the brother of Jared repents of the evil and again calls upon the name of the Lord, living up to his self-knowledge, not succumbing to a prideful self-reliance, not sinning against progress, ready to move forward, the Lord then says unto him, I will forgive thee and thy brethren of their sins, but thou shalt not sin any more, for ye shall remember that my spirit will not always strive with man. That's that same phrase that Mormon used back in the Book of Mormon. The spirit doesn't always strive with us. It doesn't always fight. It doesn't always initiate the conversation like the Lord is doing that day. It doesn't always prick our conscience and let us know we need to be going. We need to take the initiative on occasion. In fact, on most occasions. The power is in us, the Lord says in section 58 of the Doctrine and Covenants. You are agents unto yourselves. You shouldn't have to be commanded or compelled in all things. That is a slothful and an unwise servant. Brother of Jared, you and your people, take the initiative. Don't wait for me to strive with you. How long were you going to stay in Moriankamer? I'll admit, as a Southern Californian myself, the beach is a pretty comfortable place to hang out but it's not exactly a place of progress like what the Lord envisions. There's a sea to cross. There are mountains to climb. There's a Zion to build. A land to make promised as you keep your promises. He reminds him of that at the end of verse 15. If you will sin until you are fully ripe, you shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. You see where Moroni got the material for his interruption earlier? These are my thoughts, the Lord says upon the land which I shall give you for your inheritance, for it shall be a land choice above all other lands. So you have to choose to get there. Decide, take the initiative, move forward. And so they do. In verse 16, the Lord said, go to work and build. That's exactly the attitude we need to have, to roll up our sleeves, to go to work, to build our families, to build our homes, to build our communities, to build our wards, to build the kingdom. And in this case, to build after the manner of barges which ye have hitherto built. So it came to pass that the brother of Jared did go to work, and also his brethren, and built barges after the manner which they had built, according to the instructions of the Lord. Again, you see why it was so important that they learned to build barges earlier? All those preliminary water crossings, preparing them to be able to cross the ultimate ocean, to build on prior experience, to learn and grow and progress beyond what you've done previously, to do it according to the instructions of the Lord. I love how the verse ends as well. Those barges were small and were light upon the water, even like unto the lightness of a fowl upon the water. I love that these barges were never intended to be excessive or cumbersome. Remember, you're not going to live in the barge forever. It is a means, not an ends. It's just supposed to help get you there. Sadly, I think so often we end up making the world itself our barge, that we decide to stay here for good, not realizing that there is a, a higher and holier promised land yet ahead. And so we don't decide to make our worldly homes and possessions small and light. Instead, they become big and heavy. They become taxing and all-consuming. What we own ends up owning us and the cumbersome cares of the world keep us from crossing the ocean to get to that land of promise. As we spend so much time and effort trying to build up some worldly wealth, remember it's just a barge that's meant to get you to a better place. It's not the place you'll stay forever. 
Now, verse 17 then uses that beautiful phrase that was at the center of that first family home evening lesson for my wife and I. The barges were built after a manner that they were exceedingly tight, even that they would hold water like unto a dish. The bottom was tight like unto a dish. The sides were tight like unto a dish. The ends were peaked, and the top was tight like unto a dish. The length thereof was the length of a tree, and the door thereof, when it was shut, you guessed it, was tight like unto a dish as well. This barge was impenetrable, impermeable to the waters of the world. No sin was going to enter to bring them down to the depths. Along those lines, I love the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, where he's in a home that is surrounded by wickedness, trying its hardest to work its way inside. Sound like these barges? Needing to be made tight like unto a dish because water is going to do anything it can to work its way in. In Lot's case, it says that he smote the men outside with blindness. And then my favorite line from Genesis 19, that they wearied themselves in finding the door. Can we do that in our homes to make them so impregnable, these fortresses, that the world and its wickedness wearies itself in trying to find a way inside? It's like those powerful sentinels at the temple. I know they look like sweet little old men that are asking for recommends at the desk, but they are the sentinels guarding the entrance. Certain things are not allowed to pass. The temple is tight like unto a dish. Are our homes, are our lives, or another story from Genesis, a little closer to this one, Noah and the ark. What was it that preserved the world within that vessel? Well, we want to say gopher wood, right? And yes, that was essential. But there was another ingredient that was simply called pitch in Genesis 6. It says that when Noah had built the ark, he pitched it within and without with pitch. Now, what would that have been? Oh, some kind of tarry substance, right? To kind of caulk the joints to seal the, the vessel closed, to make it tight like unto a dish. It's interesting that when you meet Moses in Exodus, as his parents make this little ark of bulrushes, it was pitched as well to keep the waters of the Nile from coming in and swamping Moses' little baby basket. One interesting detail, though, is the Hebrew word used for pitch is one word in the Moses account and a different word in the Noah account. Now, literally speaking, both would have been some kind of tarry substance, right? But in the Noah version, it's amazing the word they use for pitch. It's more of a generic term. It comes from the Hebrew verb kafar, which is the word to cover. Remember in Hebrew, anytime you see the word atonement, the word being translated is from kafar, from covering. It's the atonement of Christ that covers us. It's the coat of the lamb that covers the nakedness of Adam and Eve and all their fallen posterity. It is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant that covers the covenant within. And what's that lid called? The mercy seat, the atonement throne, or as it's called in the book of Hebrews, the throne of grace. It's what covers broken covenant. It's what covers our sins and our nakedness. It's what seals the ark shut. We are covered within and without with a covering. That's what that verse says literally when it says it was pitched within and without with pitch. 
what allows Noah and his posterity to rise above the sins of the world, the grace of God, the atonement of Christ, the pitch, our only hope in becoming tight like unto a dish is what Jesus has done for us. When he filled a dish with water and used it to wipe the apostles' feet, when he filled a cup with the wrath of God and drank it to the dregs. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can keep the water out or that we can bail out the water that we've allowed to seep within. No water can swallow the ship where lies, the master of ocean and earth and skies. Don't let him sleep in that vessel. Wake him up so that he can stand and command the winds and the waves themselves to be still. I will always love that phrase because of what it teaches me about Jesus. May our homes and lives be tight like unto a dish. Now in verse 18, after the brother Jared had done all this, he cried unto the Lord. I guess he's learned his lesson, right? Saying, O Lord, I have performed the work which thou hast commanded me, and I have made the barges according as thou hast directed me. So I remembered to pray. I cried unto the Lord. I remember to rely on you to do as you've commanded and as you've directed. I've remembered to progress, to not rest on my laurels. I'm ready to go forward now that we've finished these boats. I've remembered the importance of initiative. I'm initiating this conversation. Where do I go from here? Because in verse 19, there are three things that he's worried about. He's followed the Lord's directions to the T, but there are three things about this ship design he's a little concerned with. Behold, O Lord, in them there is no light. That's the first problem. Whither shall we steer? That's the second problem. And also we shall perish, for in them we cannot breathe. That's the third problem. Save it is the air which is in them. Therefore we shall perish. So there's no light, there's no steering, and there's no air. What are we supposed to do? I love this realization on the brother Jared's part. We cannot survive spiritually in our journey to the promised land without light, without direction, and a way to change that direction, and without air, at least without access to air beyond what we hold within ourselves. We cannot survive with only the air within us. We have to have access to additional light and truth, more air to breathe. Now the Lord's going to deal with those one by one. In verse 20, okay, fine, let's start with the air. The Lord said unto the brother of Jared, Behold, thou shalt make a hole in the top and also in the bottom. And when thou shalt suffer for air, thou shalt unstop the hole and receive air. And if it so be that the water come in upon thee, behold, ye shall stop the hole, that ye may not perish in the flood. You got that? The whole thing's going to be tight like unto a dish. Just make a hole on top and a hole on bottom. If you're suffocating inside, unplug one of the holes. Let air in. And, and if it's water, you unplug the wrong hole. Plug that one back up and unplug the other. I love the lessons the Lord is teaching them and us here. First of all, this was all the Lord's idea. You didn't have a solution. Let me give one to you. There are times where the Lord spells it all out. This is exactly what you need to do to solve your problem. I like those kind. They don't always come. We're going to see the alternate version in just a moment. But I love the principle here of you cannot survive only in the air within you. There needs to be a way to access more. But there's a danger there if it's complete open access. In other words, there needs to be a way to let some outside influences in and yet another way to keep other outside influences out. 
I remember when I was a kid in high school and taking uh, AP Biology and learning about semi-permeable membranes. I thought they were the coolest thing. That still might be the only thing I remember from that class. But to think of some kind of membrane uh, on the, in the cell that was semi-permeable, permeable enough that some things could pass in and out, but not so permeable to allow access to anything and everything. I was, was, I was just amazed by that. How does it know what to let in and what to keep out? Well, that's what the Lord is trying to teach them. Air, good. Water, bad. Air will give you life. Water will sink you to the depths. We talk often in the church about being in the world and not of the world. That's the ship's design. We need to be in the world. We need to make a difference in it. There needs to be access to outside kinds of things so we can give access to what we have within. There needs to be a semi-permeable membrane to have an influence in the world. But we can't be of it. Because if we take in too much of outside influence, worldly ways, we'll sink. I hope we can be discerning to the point where we can tell the difference between air which will give us life and water which will suck it from us. Remember the creation account. Can you tell the difference between light and darkness? God can clearly divide between the two. Can you tell the difference between righteous and wicked influences? Or later in creation, when he separates sea from land, are we good at that? Can we tell the difference between solid gospel ground and the shifting currents of culture? Where are we going to build? What are we going to let in? Air or water, we have to be able to distinguish. Now that solves the first problem. He still doesn't have any insight into the second or the third, but he does move forward. In 21, the brother of Jared did so, according as the Lord had commanded. I love that he doesn't wait. That he doesn't say, well, can you answer all three of my questions before I start working on the first? No. You've given me one, that's enough for me. One step, enough for me. You've given me enough light for me to move forward. I'll do that, even if I don't have enough light for all three. Light being the operative term here. Verse 22, he cries again unto the Lord, again he's learned his lesson, saying, O Lord, behold, I have done even as thou hast commanded me. I have prepared the vessels for my people, and behold, there is no light in them. Now he had mentioned that already. Why is he bringing it up again? I think because he wonders, you've given me the absolutely essential piece of information. I suppose we can live without light. We cannot live without air. And so even though I asked for three solutions and you've only given me one, maybe that's all I get. Maybe that's supposed to be enough for me. Now, if he wants to double check, he's initiating the conversation here. But the way he ends this verse, he asks, Behold, O Lord, wilt thou suffer that we shall cross this great water in darkness? Is that why you didn't give me an answer to that one? Because it's supposed to be this way? There are times, after all where it feels like we are crossing great waters in darkness, where we don't seem to have any clue as to where we're going or why things are happening to us. Brigham Young talked about the need to learn to be righteous in the dark. And there are times in life we seem to be flying blind, submarined, far beneath periscope depth. And how do we respond in those situations? Are we willing to suffer that? if that's what the Lord would have us do? Do we ask him or do we just demand light and an explanation for having withheld it? I love the submissiveness on the brother of Jared's part. If you withheld an answer because you don't want to give it to us, I'm okay with that. 
I will move forward, grateful for the air thou hast provided, even if we have to breathe it in pitch black. Well, that wasn't the entire reason the Lord was doing that. Verse 23 suggests that he was withholding an answer because he wanted the brother of Jared to provide his own this time. In air, I will answer. With light, I want you to come up with one. And doesn't that seem to be part of the process of growing up in God? At times where the Lord tells us exactly what we need to do, and at other times where he asks us to exercise our agency, that is part of the proving of contraries that we're always seeking balance in. Agency and inspiration is a fascinating one. Bruce Amarkanke gave a talk by that title that had to do with marriage. How much of that choice is agency? We do our homework and we decide. And how much of that choice is inspiration? We seek the Lord's guidance and we go with his direction. So much of life is that balancing, that proving of contraries. And the agency inspiration one is fascinating. It's actually interesting to see in the Doctrine and Covenants. If you read it fast enough, you can start to see this unfold. That at the beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants, it's more inspiration and less agency. But as time passes, the center of gravity shifts and becomes much more agency and less inspiration. God often begins by telling us how to get air, but ends by asking us, what do you think you should do to invite light? That's what he asks in 23. The Lord said unto the brother of Jared, What will ye that I should do, that ye may have light in your vessels? You see, I'm still willing to be involved, but instead of me giving you directions like just happened with the air, I want you to give me directions. What do you want me to do? Now, he gives him some parameters. He doesn't leave him completely in the dark, pun intended. Behold, ye cannot have windows, for they will be dashed in pieces. Neither shall ye take fire with you, for ye shall not go by the light of fire. Now, he doesn't tell them why they can't use fire. He just says, no, nope, you're not supposed to do it that way. It might have something to do with the air and the tightness of the vessel and so on. But I think in another way, he's saying, nothing man-made, nothing created on your own will be able to provide the light that you will need to cross these oceans. Remember, Isaiah talked about that, describing our attempts to provide light for ourselves as sparks, measly sparks. It's the watch light I described in a previous lesson. Encompass yourself about with sparks, and you might as well just have remained in darkness. That's Isaiah's thought. Okay, fine. It's not going to be self-started. It's not going to be man-made illumination. Well, what's wrong with the windows then? Again, the hole in the top and bottom does allow some things to pass. We want air to come in. Why can't we allow light to come in? Well, I love the way the Lord answers it. He hinted at it in verse 23, they'll be dashed in pieces. But in 24, he gets much more specific. For behold, ye shall be as a whale in the midst of the sea, for the mountain waves shall dash upon you. Nevertheless, I will bring you up again out of the depths of the sea. And you get this sense from the brother of Jared. You, you can almost see the blood draining from his face like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. <clears throat> did you say dashed into pieces? Yeah, yep, that's what I said. Um, did, did, you, did you say mountain waves? Uh-huh. And, and a whale in the midst of the sea? Wait a minute. Aren't whales mostly underwater and they only come up occasionally for air? Yeah, that's what they do. Um, is, is there any way we could be? I was thinking more like a duck on the water. Remember earlier when we were talking about tight like unto a dish and it would be small and light like a fowl upon the water? How about that? Can we be ducks? Can we just float on top, occasionally dipping under if a wave comes and crashes upon the bow? I'm not sure about this whale thing. And yet that's the way the Lord describes it. 
mountain waves and dashing windows and whales in the midst of the sea, going down and having to be brought up again out of the depths. Sound a little like life? Sound like 2020 for that matter? How deep do we have to go before we realize that there's no hope of coming up for air unless God lifts us heavenward? that our futile attempts to bring light into our life at any other source shy of Jesus will be dashed into pieces along with the hopes that we placed in man-made things. There are times we feel swallowed up, times where it feels like Leviathan itself is bearing down upon us. And ironically, those times come not because we doubt that God could make it otherwise. They often come in spite of the fact that we know he can. That's the irony at the end of verse 24, when the Lord says, For the winds have gone forth out of my mouth, and also the rains and the floods have I sent forth. Now it's right there that if I were the brother of Jared, I would say, exactly. That's what I've been banking on. I know you're in charge of the winds and the waves, the rains and the floods. You can control all things. So why can't you make things easier on us? You can make us ducks instead of whales. You can make things ripples instead of mountain waves. You can keep us out of the depths of the sea. How about one of those peace be still moments that is yet to come? I know you can say that. The winds and the waves do obey thy will. Please, Father, say peace be still. That was the feeling, I believe, that was behind the decision of the Willie and Martin handcart companies to cross the plains even though it was so late in the season. I know it's dangerous to start the trip when most cross-country trips are supposed to be ending. I know that puts us across the Rocky Mountains in October. But who's in charge of winter? Who's in charge of snowfall? Who runs the weather? God does. And he wants us to come to Zion. He wants us to gather with the saints. So surely we can trust in a late and light winter. But what did those two handcart companies get? An early one. And one that was bitterly cold. The God that could have made it easier actually made it harder instead. And that's exactly what he's saying will happen for the Jaredites. The winds have gone forth from my mouth, and they will howl. The rains and the floods have I sent forth, and they will bury you. Now, why on earth would a loving God do that? Verse 25, Behold, I prepare you against these things. I'm preparing the things themselves, but I'm preparing you against them. For ye cannot cross this great deep, save I prepare you against the waves of the sea and the winds which have gone forth and the floods which shall come. You understand what he's trying to convey? For four years you sat on a beach, Mahanrai, thinking that you'd arrived, that you could handle all of these things. In moments of ease, in times of plenty, it is so easy to forget God. So there are times where I have to make life more difficult in hopes that you will reach for me and find me in your extremities. It's amazing to see what the lessons could be learned from the Exodus, where the Lord provided everything. 
The Red Sea parted and they crossed on dry ground. The Jordan River stopped and they crossed that without getting their feet wet. Manna poured down from heaven, quails filling the camp. Even their shoes didn't wear out or their clothing wear out upon them. Forty years of wandering, but everything was provided for them. And what did Moses warn them about at the end? And what did Joshua remind them about once they got into the Promised Land? Both of those great leaders said, You are about to enter a land for which you did not labor. You'll eat from vineyards you didn't plant and drink from wells you didn't dig. You'll live in cities you did not build. Then beware, lest ye forget the Lord. We typically don't bite the hand that feeds us, but we do tend to ignore it once the feeding happens so frequently that we take it for granted. And that's exactly what happened with ancient Israel. They did forget the Lord their God. Compare their exodus to the exodus of the early Latter-day Saint pioneers. Did the sea part for them? No. Was manna provided every morning? No. It wasn't pillar of fire and cloud of smoke guiding them by day and night. It was sending out scouts and trying to find their way. It wasn't the Jordan River being divinely dammed. It was crossing the Platte or the Sweetwater over and over. Shoes and clothing never wearing out? Hardly. It was bloody footprints in the snow. It was hard for so many of those pioneers. And what happened once they arrived at a desert that had not yet blossomed as the rose? Far from cities that you have not built will you dwell in. These cities, the saints had to build themselves. But guess the difference? They never forgot the Lord. Their journey was so hard that they knew clearly, unmistakably, that they could not survive it on their own. In some ways, life has to be just hard enough to cure us of the delusion of thinking that we can do it on our own. My mission was just that hard. My life has been just that hard. Not so hard that we get to the breaking point, but hard enough that we get to the broken heart and contrite spirit point. That we turn to God for his help and that we come to know him in our extremities. You cannot cross this great deep without me. It has to be hard enough to teach you that. It reminds me of what the Lord said to Nephi. Again, so many parallels between these two journeys. But when Nephi is told by the Lord, you cannot have fire. That's too much of the arm of flesh in which to place your trust. I'll bless your uncooked meat so that it is palatable. I'll bless your pregnant wives so they can actually give suck to their children. I will be your light in the wilderness. And then my favorite line from that, and ye shall know that it is by me that ye are led. You'll come to know me. You'll know I'm the one leading you because you'll know that it's too hard for you to do it on your own. I remember years ago helping to organize a stake trek in Tennessee. And I was part of the stake MS presidency and we were putting it all together and I was kind of picturing, yeah, it's going to be nice. I'm going to be in the razor, you know, the, the driving around, making sure everything's going okay. Those poor ma's and pa's that have to kind of lead out on each handcart with all of the youth. Well, the Spanish ward in our stake, for some reason, didn't have any leaders come. And I was the only member of the stake Young Men's Presidency that spoke El Idioma Celestial. And so all of a sudden I realized, oh, this is going to be a work week for me, big time. And I gathered all the Spanish-speaking youth and said, I guess I'm with you guys. Soy tu papá y tu mamá y tu abuelo. I'm, I'm here with you. And we had a blast together. But what was interesting, as the trek just 
got underway. Seriously, the last handcart had not yet wheeled its way out of the staging area. And one of those southern rainstorms came that just buried us in this deluge. It was crazy. Thunder, lightning, seriously. It was like, is this the next 40 days and 40 nights? Has it come to that? We had to gather everybody back to the, it was this scout camp. Everybody had to hunker down under a covered kind of mess hall. We hadn't gone 100 yards yet. And the entire camp of Israel was drenched. We could all tell that the youth and their leaders weren't just drenched, but were a bit downhearted. Really? We're starting this way? It did not bode well. And so as we all sat there wondering what to do, I just felt this nudge, go teach them. So I stood on a picnic table and got the youth's attention and taught them this principle from Ether chapter 2. That what the Jaredites were learning then and what the Willie and Martin handcart companies were learning in the 1850s was exactly what the Nashville, Tennessee stake was learning in the waterlogged hills of East Tennessee. That God, who could always make things easier, sometimes makes things harder. So we come to know him in our extremities. I actually asked the youth, you know how many handcart companies there were? I couldn't remember exactly. It was close to a dozen. I said, awesome, name three. And they were like, okay, uh, the Willie, the Martin, and, uh, um, and that's what hit us, that we couldn't remember any of the others. Some had pretty easy journeys, and we don't remember them. It's the ones that come to know God that we come to know. And I reassured those youth, there are all kinds of treks out there. This one, I promise, will be memorable. The rains and the floods the Lord has sent forth. The winds have gone forth out of his mouth. And we'll never forget this experience. We haven't. We all came to know God in more personal ways that week. As the rain kept falling, almost unabated for days. Ever tried to sleep in a sleeping bag that felt more like a sponge? Honestly, I remember one night just sitting on a jacket. It was the only dry thing I had left, I think. And just holding my knees, kind of sitting up in fetal position, head on forearms, just praying for the dawn. I wasn't sleeping anyway. Let's just get up and keep walking. I kept singing to myself, and should we die before our journey's through? But all was well. Circumstance pushed us beyond our normal limits. And it was in that extra mile that we came to know God. Ye shall know that it is by me ye are led. I prepare you against these things. You can't make it without my help. Can we agree on that now? But anyway, Mahanrai, back to your question. How does 25 end? Therefore, what will ye that I should prepare for you, that ye may have light when ye are swallowed up in the depths of the sea? Ball's in your court. What do you want me to do? By the way, the Lord never gets around to the third issue that the brother of Jared brought up. Air, I'll explain. Light, you come up with an idea. Steering, <laughs> I love that by the end of this part of the conversation, it's as if the brother of Jared realized, oh, well, based on your answer to my last question, when it comes to question number three, the steering, never mind. Don't even worry about it. By the time we realize that God has already provided for us light 
and life, steering doesn't seem to be such a big deal anymore. We are willing to let God take the steering wheel. And after all he's done for us, can't we be content with that? Can we trust him with the direction in our lives? He lends us breath, providing us air. He is the light of the world by which we can see all that we need to. Can't we come to trust him and take our will, our agency, our steering wheel, and leave it in his capable hands? I trust you, Father. I know you'll bring us home.